Welcome to the U.S.-China Nexus, a podcast from Georgetown University's Initiative for U.S.-China Dialogue on Global Issues. This podcast features conversations with scholars and policy experts on dynamics in China and Sino-American relations. The show's guests take us through the development of their careers and share their thoughts about the current state of bilateral ties. I'm your host, Eleanor M. Albert, a research fellow at the initiative. Today, our guest is Derek Goldman. Derek is chair of the Department of Performing Arts and director of the Theater and Performance Studies program. He is also a professor of theater and performance studies at Georgetown University with a joint appointment in the School of Foreign Service as a professor of global performance, culture, and politics. You are the co-founding director of the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics, an award-winning international stage director, producer, festival director, playwright, teacher, and published scholar. You are also the creator of the In Your Shoes methodology. Your work has taken you around the world from places such as Australia, Cambodia, and Peru to Poland, Russia, South Africa, and of course, China. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here, Eleanor. So performance and politics, let's start with some background. How did you get to where you are now and what led you to forging a career path at this intersection of theater and politics? I'd say like many things, it's been mostly a series of serendipitous, happy accidents and organic trajectories. I was fortunate relatively early on in high school. I was from Brookline, Massachusetts, and I went to Brookline High School, which is a large public high school. And there was a mentor of mine who had established something called the Brookline Educational Theater Company. And the model was, instead of just putting on plays and musicals the way many high schools would, as we were creating plays in the community around social issues. So the students would get together with adults and we created plays around freedom of expression around drug of alcohol abuse and you know so that I thought it was really cool and I don't think I really understood how radical in a way it was to be exposed to that at that age that really led me on a journey that took me to Northwestern for undergraduate and graduate school and the AIDS epidemic was very central in my own familial history and my own trajectory and when I was in college as an undergraduate there were many of us who were going through the sort of surge of and incredible loss in terms of that and so what we did again very reactively and without really knowing what we were doing is created an original play at the time of this is before angels in america and other AIDS pieces about the AIDS epidemic in our midst and that ended up having a lot of traction and being able to sort of tour a bit and go into communities so from there i was really sold on the fact that for there was something kind of inseparable about the core of the art form of theater and and its capacity to bear witness to humanize just literally that we are breathing in the space of other human beings whose story we are witnessing, who may come from a really challenging or different point of view than our own, or who may be affirming things that we've had sort of privately held. And so I got exposed to that early, and I feel like the rest of my life in different forms has been about learning, exploring, adventuring, and kind of trying to imagine or participate in projects around that that would be meaningful. 
you just gave us such a taste of the domestic environment in which you were exposed to these ideas politically. Clearly, your work now has also taken you internationally. You've had work that has brought you to China in the past. I, I wondered if you could talk about you went there in what capacity what was something that you learned from that experience? And then extrapolating, given the current political climate, do you think these types of opportunities are still available? I came to Georgetown about 17 years ago to open the Davis Performing Arts Center and establish a theater and performance studies program with colleagues. And so the, the great and rare opportunity of that was at an institution like Georgetown, there'd been lots of meaningful groundwork laid and lots of incredible arts work on campus, but there hadn't been an academic program, there hadn't been a building. And so to imagine what we could do that would be additive and specific to Georgetown. And so it was very natural. I'd always had an interest and a curiosity, fascination with global and international work, but it was really that moment and sort of starting to understand what makes Georgetown special and what it is to shape that in Washington, D.C. that was kind of the catalyst for thinking about that. Kismet. Yeah, Kismet, exactly. And that ended up leading to the founding of the lab, which again was not so much some huge big idea of mine or of anyone else's, but really grew from the passions of students that, and intersectional work that we were encountering. In terms of China, I started just becoming very interested in the global landscape of theater making and arts making and quickly realized that there was a lot going on that very few Americans were participating in. So through a couple, again, of serendipitous relationships with colleagues, there's an organization that's actually now based in Shanghai called the International Theater Institute, which is the largest performing arts organization in the world and is a UNESCO organization, it was originally based in Paris near UNESCO and moved to Shanghai. And they host these world congresses. And I showed up at one 12, 15 years ago. And what happens is you quickly form deep bonds and relationships and connections in this kind of united nations of theater artists, people from all over the world. And so that framework, yes, it's about project development and it's about cultural diplomacy and really so much of it is, is simply about relationship building and about connections and, and affinities. And China's been central to most of that trajectory for me because of relationships formed early on with Shanghai Theater Academy many friends on faculty there and the development of International Theater Institute in its recent incarnation, it has been very woven with artists in Shanghai. And so as I got to know, there were just some core people and I was invited to do residencies and workshops in Shanghai. And then as ITI moved, I was one of the handful of people who was part of that. I actually was a co-founder of something called the Network for Higher Education, the Performing Arts. ITI was a great organization, but it was a little bit dusty. <laughs> so one of my interests coming from Georgetown was what can we do to make academies and young people around the world to put them in conversation with each other? And so we ended up founding this network. And the founding of it really happened between Shanghai Theater Academy and Georgetown were the two core partners on that initial founding. So in a really beautiful way, my first encounters with China were all about interactions between, you know, student to student and being hosted. And we brought a Hamlet production that was juxtaposed with Beijing opera kind of version of Hamlet. So it felt very comfortable to work in China. And I've worked with dozens or hundreds of students from China, and it's been very moving and meaningful. 
one of the things that started to emerge as I spent more time there, perhaps obviously in some ways, so much of my work is about just getting people to share and to tell stories and to be personal. And so one starts to realize how the framework for doing that is very culturally specific, right? And so I started to realize how different an experience and in some ways maybe how radical an experience that was for some of the students from China who were doing that than it was maybe from students from the U.S. So that became kind of moving and fascinating to me. And and anyway, I think it's interesting now full circle because just recently has been the first really intensive In Your Shoes collaboration. The kind of climate has shifted, but in a way, the work has always been person-to-person work. The work ends up being political by virtue of how personal it is, because it is political to allow people the space to think and imagine themselves and to encounter difference. But we've never really set out self-consciously to be like, let's have this particular geopolitical conversation or tackle this particular issue. We've really been doing this kind of more intimate person-to-person work. Turning to the in-your-shoes methodology that is such a dominant feature of the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics, I was wondering if you could unpack what that is, you know, like what does that entail? And then can you provide some examples of this methodology at work, different places in which this has been used? This work came out of really what were classroom and rehearsal techniques. How are we going to build trust in this space? How are we going to get to know each other? And so some of this is group work that a whole group does together. And the values are really about deep listening, mutual respect, and noticing what's already present in any space. One thing through doing this work now for so long, I've come to just really feel such a tiny fraction of who we all are and what we know in many circumstances ends up even being allowed to come to the surface because the topic is X. And so nobody even gets a chance to realize, oh, I have, we have this in common. And so in a sense, the point of this work is to shift that from saying we're here to talk about X to being like what's already in this room. A lot of it is group exercises, call and response. We really believe in the kind of power of even just things as simple as one's own name, your whole name, where it comes from, standing and saying it and then having it repeated back to you. And then actually you inflect this phrase this this way. And and of course, when I'm doing this in cross-cultural settings, this can actually be very emotional. I've had many people as we go just around an initial circle and people respectfully repeat back their full name, they burst into tears. They say, I haven't heard my name I've told everyone, just call me this, just call me that. You don't need to do it. So there's just a power in just naming. And then from naming, we look at things like places of significance, people of significance to you. It's not really storytelling at this point. It's a kind of ritual of building a space of human connection. And then what that work allows us to do is lay a foundation then for smaller group work or what's typically pair work where people go off and have conversations off of prompts. And the prompts tend to be, again, quite encompassing and inviting. So one that we use a lot early on is just home. And what does home mean to you? Which on one hand can be very personal and private and people talk about 
parents and domestic structures and rooms and meals, but also we're living in a time of incredible migration and so many other things just come up in those conversations. The, the, they're not interviews. We really see them as two-way conversations. We ask people to be recording them. You know, everyone's got a device. Then they go away and listen back to the recording and they curate a section of the other person's words that they transcribe very precisely in a what we call an ethnopoetic way. So it looks like a poem. It's like you're creating a little artwork out of someone's words. And it includes all of the funny things we all do with ums and ahs. You know, it's all there. The idiosyncrasies. Exactly. And then they perform the other person's words. Another thread of this, as we spend time together that we're developing, I work with collaborators who focus on movement and body language, is something about the development of our critical capacities to not only pay attention to text and words, but to body language and other things, but to do it respectfully, because you quickly get into someone has a dialect, someone has an accent, how do we navigate? So we're really very conscious about not ignoring it, but being like, well, what are the things that you're noticing about? If we're being as effective as we try to be at creating a kind of safe, nurturing space, it's vulnerable, but in the best sense. That's the model. And then out of that, they come back and perform each other for the group. It's very moving and lots is revealed, but it's also iterative. It's generative. People want to then have the next conversation because things are surfaced. Once I started realizing that students and others who were doing this were really having a, a rewarding and meaningful time, we started thinking about different applications of it beyond just a group of people who already were taking class together, getting to know each other. The initial big one was really looking at how polarized so many communities are, but if this works this well, how might it be a model for bringing people together who really are struggling to have respectful conversations because of just such seismic disagreements? And so we piloted this program that's now existed for several years between Georgetown and Patrick Henry College, which is a conservative Christian school in Virginia, which on the whole has a very, very different population than Georgetown. Again, what you realize as soon as you do this is that Georgetown's incredibly diverse and Patrick Henry's incredibly diverse. But what that gave us the chance to do was to start to build through this methodology relationships over the course of a longer period of time, over a year of students coming together and see the journey that they could go on in terms of how deep and how complex those conversations could get. That's really become what the In Your Shoes model is. And then, you know, COVID has impacted like everything. But in a strange way, this work does work on Zoom. There are different dimensions, different limitations, but also Zoom can be quite an intimate space for some of these encounters. I've been doing this work with medical students who are learning to listen more empathically to their patients. We've been doing intergenerational work around climate change really trying to think about where an opportunity to have a conversation that in some way has difference in it as a critical element where this method can excavate conversations that might otherwise not get to happen. That's really meaningful, especially in an American polarized context where we're always told certain kinds of conversation are supposed to be off the table because there is difference. You're working on a collaboration with the initiative in your shoes, and it's this pilot program on U.S. China. From your personal vantage point and from the conversations that have started happening in the program, how would you describe the current state of relations between the U.S. and China? A couple of things. The first is that just how genuinely 
grateful I am to the initiative and to the, the team and to, but because I hoped that this would be reductive, but it's really been in, incredible, the intensity of commitment and emotion and connection to this work. We think of a pilot, let's try something, but this actually has felt very, very moving. And we're, you know, in some ways we are just getting started with the possibilities of it, but what, what it has revealed is very, very charged and powerful. In an earlier vision, as we were trying to imagine and shape what this project could be, my first reactions and, you know, in talking to others about, were like, oh, well, we should work with Shanghai Theater Academy. I've done this work at Shanghai Theater Academy. They've got students, we've got students. So I reached out to colleagues there who are friends, proposed it, and they were like, yes, of course, we'll do it, we'll do it. And just to say with candor that as we got closer to sort of figuring out what it was, it became clear that that model wasn't going to be possible in the current climate. I don't think I can speak with any particular expertise on U.S.-China relations, although I feel like I've been learning a lot from colleagues like Orville Schell at the Asia Society and talking to him about the current moment. And but what I can say is that for the students who've been part of this, how visceral it is for them that a space has, has been opened up at all, I think on the whole, and I don't want to generalize that all, I think there's a feeling that these conversations and in particular, the identities of these students, which are diverse, but are broadly speaking, largely connected to the Chinese diaspora in some way. Some of these students are here from China and are going back. Some of these students are Chinese American and have families that have emigrated. And there's a range, there's a sort of continuum, but all of them have a connection to the conversations about these relationships that are personal. And all of them have expressed feeling in one way or another, invisible silenced, not being given a space to explore who they are in some fundamental way in relationship to what's happening. And some of them have experienced outright hate and violence in, in one form or another. So I think the starting point here is the carving out of safe space for something communal. Within it, there's enormous difference and diversity, but it's, it's a little more about revealing what's already there that is shared. And we really just met with this group over about two months. This, so in some ways, the conversations were very, very deep and personal. But I think some of the journey content and topics are just getting started. But in some ways, I think the relationship to U.S.-China relations or the sort of more macro political thing is just to sort of say that people think that there is huge prejudice, stereotyping, generalizing, projecting and that as individuals in one form or another, they're caught up in and implicated in and victims of those reductive misunderstandings. So to me, I feel like this work is actually about trying to almost reclaim the textured reality of lives and people. To me, there's even a question of how we imagine audience for it and the balance between private and public. In this work, we pay a lot of attention to community guidelines around consent so that two people can have a conversation and they may choose to reveal lots of personal things to each other. And then it's, you can always say in this work at the end, that was great. But when we go back to the group, let's just keep this part in and that part out. And then even more common in the group, things come out and people are like, well, that's great here. But if we're going to widen this or show a video of this or, or have an audience come in, I would look this part in and this part out. And I think that's always been a thing within your shoes, but that's a very complex and nuanced part of this work for all the obvious reasons. 
And I think that's hard, but it's also been an interesting challenge, I think, to think about in your shoes more broadly in that way is how can we balance everybody's desire, including the students, to sort of actually have this work be witnessed, to not just have it be something that happens in a room with 12 people, to have it actually others go, oh, we can have these conversations while actually keeping the content. I don't think we've solved that, but I think even just grappling with strategies for it has been really generative. On that note, I was wondering if you could share some of the prompts that you have created for some of these conversations to have an idea of the starting points, what that has led to. Can you share any insights from the experiences, whether it's people who are from diametrically opposed versions of the diaspora, you know, just talking about what some of the lessons learned and insights have been. We did do one on home. It always surprises me how deep and complex that gets. So it's definitely not just a starter kit. We did one on belonging. One of the arts of this, I think, is actually to take their temperature and you're now in this group, you're forming these relationships. So it's not, we don't do surveys on it, but part of the art is almost like a tuning fork. What is this group wanting to talk about with one another, even in the discussions they're having? And that came up a lot, a little more specific or different than just home, this sense of I'm home, but I don't belong. And I'm betwixt and between, I think that sense of feeling betwixt and between, even though there's a real spectrum within this community of how they define themselves, but they all feel that. And so that was very moving. And I think, you know, just bluntly led to a lot of, it's more complex than confessional, but I think what you start to have is like people having conversations that they have not had, period. And so what many of them comment on is that they're not being forced to do it. They trust to do it, but it's like they're allowed to actually start to form thoughts and feelings in a way they haven't done. And then the other thing that I think this process does is it's really a huge process of self-discovery as much as discovery of the group because of that. Because when you hear yourself reflected back by someone else, what they often say is like, I never knew I felt that way. It doesn't even sound like me. Or sometimes they'll say, I can't believe I said that a few days ago. I don't have any memory of saying that. But then it's also being affirmed by the group and someone's going, oh, that connects to my experience. And a lot of times these are experiences that they've really just not had the space to be let out. So I think the idea of belonging, which, which again, I think it's easy to think of that as just personal and on an intimate register, but it's not. And so what happens, especially with these very brilliant Georgetown students, many of whom are studying international relations, is that this move between micro and macro implications tends to happen pretty organically as part of the conversation. We also then had quite an incredible round towards the end of the experience around hope, just hope. Where do you find hope? What does hope look like? And again, what happens is, you know, on the surface, that can sound like it might be a tiny bit in a time where there is so much darkness, a little bit facile or like redemptive or whatever. But in fact, I would say what the conversations, the richness of it was that it was less about individuals saying, oh, I find hope still in this, that despite everything. And it was, it was actually more about the status of hope in our world what it actually takes. So people are talking about it in relation to climate and the environment. So it just becomes a different kind of space that's moving across things. This work doesn't really end up being so much about working out political difference. To me, that's okay. That's not actually the goal. 
but it's allowing us to sort of surface and excavate with respect a range of perspectives and have people go, oh, I see where that is. And to do so in a way that's not shallow, you know, that's actually really dimensional. And that just has to do with how incredibly articulate and brilliant the students are. Keeping in in light the tenor of US-China dynamics right now. And I wondered if it constrained the conversation, if it was the elephant in the room, or if it was more of a permissive condition that allowed different conversations to come about. You were talking about belonging, and I think about how dynamic the U.S.-China relationship is, right? It it often ends up being essentialized as an executive-to-executive relationship, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more than the economy. It's the diaspora. It creates all these networks. You were just talking about the relationships that all of your students have. You know, belonging can be to your university, to your family, to a geographic place, to social groups, to interests that unify you. It could be to food. I think the honest answer, Eleanor, is that the tensions were a backdrop and that the experience was in contrast to those tensions. Those are real and those are part of the emotional foundation. I mean, we had a student, you know, talking about from a very, very worried and emotional place about their family members in lockdown because of COVID in Shanghai and not being able to get food, current events. We did this while a war broke out. There was the implications and ripples of that geopolitically and personally, and just the visceral experience of we are processing that that's happening in the world. It came up a lot, but it came up as sort of the subtext for personal reflections and processing and experiences. And I feel like the next step then, a next iteration can instead of just being a restart, actually enable some of the folks who've begun with us to continue. In some ways, it's almost like the macro implications of the backdrop allowed for something really radical to start to happen that included those, but was really personal. And then the next step would almost be to reapply two sets of perspectives, which these students are certainly having and have insights about. That's where I feel also different kinds of expertise and facilitation, what different experiences we could share together. We had meals together. We went, we went to the movies together. You know, this sort of, each of those things brings out actually different aspects. You have a meal together, you talk about food and how it lives in your world. And you learn about family members in a different kind of way. So the relationships built here could then be really applied to set other sets of circumstances. It could be a conduit to creating some type of peace that could shed light on the differences that are at work. Exactly. The U.S.-China Nexus is created and produced by Eleanor M. Albert. Our music is from Universal Production Music. Special thanks to Toya Ulan, Leanne Decker, Sherman Tong, and Amy Vandervliet. For more initiative programming, videos, and links to our events, visit our website at uschinadialogue.georgetown.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.